Now it's working. Okay. So our topic is Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin is born in 1913 in Brisk, a very important Jewish city in eastern Poland. And he comes from a family of devoted members of the Jewish community, Zionists and traditional Jews. His father, Zevdov Begin, was a leading member of the community, of the Kehillah, and was a religious man in his own way. And to quote one of the, uh, the stories, they were Shomer Shabbos, and they kept Yom Kippur, but Begin's father told him to brush his teeth on Yom Kippur, because when you speak to God, you can't have foul breath. So it was like a quirky religious type of observance. But from a very Zionist home. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the Pesach. So, but there's a, an interesting story about Begin's father. In 1904, who died? Herzl. Herzl died August 4th, 1904. And when Herzl died, there was a desire on the part of many Zionists the world over to commemorate his death with some sort of observance, a hespid, a eulogy. But who is the Rav and Brisk? The Brisk and Rav, the Soloveitchik family, were in control of, uh, the, of, the, of the Kehillah, of the Shul. And the Brisk and Rav refused to allow a eulogy for Theodore Herzl. So what did Menachem Begin's father do? He broke down the door with Ariel Sharon's grandfather, and they invaded the Shul, and they held a, a, a eulogy, a hespid, for Theodore Herzl. goes to show you how... People who we know from later in the story have uh, predecessors who know each other. It's a small Jewish world. It's a small Jewish world. So Begin is born in 1913, and in his childhood, he's involved in uh, the life of the community. His father encourages him to be involved in the Zionist youth organizations, and he joins Hashomer HaTzair, in 1926, at the age of 13. Now, lest you get the wrong impression that he was some sort of a left-winger, don't think that. Hashem HaTzair was really just like the Boy Scouts at that time. It didn't have ideological orientation in the mid-20s that it would have 10, 20, 30 years later. And he drops out very shortly thereafter. The legend would have it that he made some sort of speech protesting the, 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 the leftism of the, the Hashem HaTzair. Nonsense. It's all apocryphal written later. But in 1929, he joins Beitar at the age of 16 and becomes a rabid devotee of, Z- of Jabotinsky. Uh, and for the next 10 years, will rise through the ranks of Beitar in Eastern Europe, eventually becoming the commander of Beitar in Czechoslovakia in 1937, and then the big job, commander of Beitar in Poland in 1939. His relationship with Jabotinsky was not necessarily the warmest relationship. Although he viewed Jabotinsky as like a surrogate father and a, almost the point of idolatry, or gadolatry in the Zionist term, still Jabotinsky was not so fond of Begin. He appointed him commander only because there was no other choice. There was lack of, uh, of another option. And in 1938, at the Beitar Convention, when Begin suggested uh, a takeover, a hostile takeover of Palestine by diaspora Jewish youth, Jabotinsky put him in his place 
in a very firm way and said that you, you have a pie in the sky dream, it can't happen. So, Begin has this uh, reverence for his mentor, but the relationship is a little bit standoffish. 1939, Begin marries Eliza Arnold, the love of his life. And they are married for the next 43 years until her death in 1982, which devastated him terribly and from which he never recovered. The war is on its way. Right, he was in L.A. Right, she told him to go to America for the UJA event, for the Jewish Federation event, and he went, but he, he was hesitant to go, and he found out on the plane that she had died. They turned the plane around, he went back home. Um, 1939, the war is, is about to happen. Where is Begin? Well, he's a lawyer. He graduated law school, University of Warsaw, 1935, and he's a bit of he's a clerk. He's a, 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 a low-ranking lawyer. Why doesn't he make Aliyah? Very basic point. Something you have to understand. The Zionists of the left, the labor Zionists, regarded it as the solemn duty of the individual Jew of the diaspora <coughs> to make Aliyah to go to Eretz Yisrael and to settle the land and to push the plow and to uh, settle one acre after another. The right side of the aisle, the revisionist side of the aisle, of which now Begin is an important ideologue and propagandist, does not believe in the absolute obligation of the individual to make Aliyah. But rather they believe in what? The obligation of Jewry as a whole, or the Zionist movement, to advocate the creation of a Jewish state which at that point in time will allow for free and unfettered immigration to Eretz Yisrael, and at which point, presumably, good Zionists will move to Israel. So, the Beitar organization, for all of its militancy, was not militant about Aliyah. Yes, it did encourage it, but not to the extent that the left side of the aisle did. And so, Begin didn't move to Palestine in the 1930s. He stayed in Chutz Aretz and was an important propagandist for revisionist Zionism. Was the British even Yes, uh, revisionists were not prohibited from entering Palestine by some sort of fiat of the mandate. Only Jabotinsky himself was excluded. You know, he came to visit in 1929, as we discussed a few weeks ago, and then he left, and they said, you can't come back. He was the only one, uh, before the outbreak of the, of the war, who was personally excluded. Later, there'd be members of the Irgun and Lehi who'd, uh, who'd be exiled to Eritrea and Djibouti, um, but... Early on, revisionists could enter Eretz Israel. The only thing stopping them was the, the inability to get a certificate. And how do you get a certificate? Through the Zionist agency. The problem is the revisionists are a minority faction or a breakaway faction, and the, the mainstream Mapai or general Zionists are not so quick to give certificates to people who are known members of Beitar. So it, it wasn't such a simple thing, but it could have been done. Okay. But with time running out, with time running out, illegal immigration is the, uh, the new style. Escape from Europe. And so, in August of 39, Begin uh, arranges for the escape of 1,500 Jews, most of them Beitarniks, through Romania to the sea onto rickety ships that will get you eventually uh, to Eretz Israel. But the idea was a half baked idea, it failed. They never got past the, the Romanian border. 
and everyone had to go home. The problem is when you go home, you're facing September 1st, 1939, the outbreak of World War II. Warsaw is in western Poland. Western Poland is occupied by the Nazis. What happens to eastern Poland? Occupied by the Soviets a few weeks later. So many Jews fled. That was a prearrangement. That was a prearrangement from Molotov von Ribbentrop deal, which wasn't known to the general public, but they'd find out within the course of a few weeks as Poland fell. Many Jews in Warsaw and in central Poland fled eastward towards the Soviet occupation, thinking that if I have two bad uh, behemoths to deal with, the commies versus the Nazis, we'll go with the communists, maybe we'll live. And so people fled to Vilna. Begin was criticized by some for abandoning his ship, for abandoning his flock of the Beitar youth of Poland to go away to Vilna. In Vilna, with some members of his family, he lives under the rule of the, uh, the Republic of Lithuania at that point until 1940, when the Soviet Union swallows up the Republic of Lithuania, it no longer exists, and it's now just Soviet Russian rule. The NKVD arrests him in September of 1940 uh, for crimes against the state. What was his crime? Zionism. Zionism is a, crime, is a political crime. He goes to jail. He's eventually sentenced, uh, convicted of political crimes and sentenced to, the, to Siberia, or to, the, to the, basically north of the Arctic Circle. Not good. Maybe they'll never see him again. Eliza, what happens to her? She eventually makes Aliyah to Israel and sends a coded note to him on a, on a handkerchief saying that she, Allah, she went to Israel. But Begin doesn't die in the gulag and he doesn't even spend that much time in Soviet prison. He only spends about a year in their custody, but it was a horrible year at that, under considerable torture. And he would write a book about it, The White Knights, in the 1950s, describing his time under uh, Soviet detention. This, this course is about heroes and villains, and so much of Begin's life will be uh, a question of how do we interpret um, what he did. His detractors will say one thing, and his admirers will say another. When it comes to his time in the Soviet prison, so the, the legendary account of what happened, and maybe it's true, and the evidence that came out after the end of the Cold War seems to indicate this is true, unlike almost all prisoners who give in to the demands of their captors and confess whatever crimes that they supposedly committed or uh, concede the, the, the incorrectness of their ideology and, and then profess the, uh, the wonders of Soviet <laughs> communism, Begin refused to do so, even under severe threat of, of torture, that he would fight and argue with his, uh, with his interrogators and defend the legitimacy of Zionism and how it's not a, a crime at all. If anything, that Soviet communism is the crime. It takes a lot of chutzpah and audacity to be able to say such things to a Soviet interrogator, but he did. Or at least he claimed he did, and the, 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 the records coming out of Moscow after, the, after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union indicated it's true. So he was a brave man. But even brave men break after a certain while. Physically, they can't handle it anymore. It never came to that, because he was freed. Why was he freed? In 1941, with the German invasion of, of Russia, the Soviet Union realized that it needed additional forces. And so the Soviet Union made deals with 
the so-called free armies of their occupied countries to release political prisoners that they should then join military forces to fight the, Soviet, to, to fight the Nazis in the, in the broader war effort. Begin, as a Polish citizen, was released from prison on condition that he join the General Anders Polish Army, which was under the general auspices of the British Army. And so here Menachem Begin goes from being Polish Zionist to Soviet prisoner to Polish soldier under the auspices of the British. And then where does he go? Through the Afghanistan border, he makes his way towards the Middle East with the Anders Army and ends up in Palestine, of all places. So sometimes the Rebono Shalom works in odd ways, that a big-time revisionist Zionist ends up in the Negev in a Polish army uniform. Could you just define what revisionist Zionism So revisionist Zionism, we, 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 the last couple of weeks before the Chagim, we discussed it. Um, we, we had a class? Uh, there were a few, yeah. Nobody told me. Uh, uh, so, uh, revision, revisionist Zionism is established in 1923 by Vladimir Jabotinsky as a breakaway from the general Zionist movement. It's a party within the Zionist movement until 1935, when in fact they then resign membership from the WZO. Uh, it believes in um, two, two sides of the Jordan River, meaning Jewish sovereignty over all of Western Eretz Israel and over Transjordan. It believes in militant Zionism in the sense of the focus on the uh, establishing of Jewish legions to fight <coughs> Jews fighting on their own behalf, and the focus on international recognition of Jewish, mil- uh, Jewish national rights and Jewish military aims, as opposed to underground movements, which we'll discuss now with Menachem Begin, which was a departure from classic revisionism. Okay, so Begin is now in Eretz Israel, 1942, but he's in a Polish uh, unit. Does he desert and just uh, join the, uh, the fighting forces of the Yishuv? No, he does not. Many Jews who made it to Eretz Israel under, in a Polish uniform, did desert and just blend into the woodwork, you know, slip into the, some, some apartment in Tel Aviv never to be seen again, and, you know, get rid of their uniform. But the legend about Menachem Begin is that he was an upstanding individual and would not, uh, as a soldier, forsake his commitments. As an honest man, he couldn't just desert from the Polish army. And so he stayed for another year and a half until he got uh, a, an official release on December 31st, 1943. That's the official version, according to the Cherut ideologues. Whether that's really what happened, nobody really knows. Uh, again, a lot of it is shrouded in mystery of, of the early 40s in Eretz Israel. Okay. But, by the time he's released, he's ready to take over the Irgun, Etzel, Irgun Svailuomi, which requires us to move back a little bit in time, and maybe next week or the week after when we discuss Yitzchak Shamir, we'll have to discuss the underground in, more, in, greater, in greater length about the origins of Irgun and Lehi. Um, but just a, the, the one-minute version. The Irgun is founded in 1931 as a breakaway from the Haganah, uh, because the Haganah had become, instead of uh, a non-partisan, a, a non-political arm to defend the Yishuv, it became the military wing of left-wing Zionism, of the Mapai Party and the Histadrut. And so for those who were not members of the, of the, of, of the Labor Parties or the Histadrut and had other ideological orientation, they wanted to have their own um, military uh, units. And so that was known as the Haganah Bet, 
The Haganah Bet eventually becomes the Irgun Svei in 1937, and the leaders are Jabotinsky unofficially at the top, but he's in the, he's in the diaspora. So although he's, a, in theory, the ideological leader of the Irgun, he's not by any means the commander. He's not on the scene. David Raziel is the commander of the Irgun. He dies, actually, in 1941 outside of Baghdad. Why would the head of the Irgun die outside of Baghdad? The answer is, although the Irgun was uh, an illegal organization and the British suppressed it uh, terribly, when they needed the Irgun, they called on them. And during the war, with with a pro-Nazi takeover of the government in Iraq, the British looked for whatever forces they could find that were anti-Nazi, and they turned to the Irgun, uh, Raziel went with a bunch of, uh, of his men and was killed in an aerial bombardment. Um, the breakaway from the Irgun was the Lechi Lochamechei Rut Yisrael, or the Stern Gang, founded by Yair, or, uh, which, was, which was the uh, code name for Avraham Stern, which is a more radical break from the, from the Irgun, whereas the Irgun was revisionist, Lechi was non-poli- non-political, which we'll see soon enough what that means. And Lechi believed in terrorism that included assassination of individuals and you know, grotesque acts of violence. It was led by, after Yair's death, by Yitzhak Shamir, Natan uh, Yellen Moor, and Yisrael Eldad. Okay, they don't get along with the Irgun, but occasionally there's cooperation. Despite both being radical militant organizations, they have personality gripes, you know, uh, pers- uh, conflicts between individuals and also the occasional ideological difference. Okay, Menachem Begin in 1943-44 is now a former head of, of Beitar in Poland, a macher ideologically, but not a person who knows military affairs. He's, he wasn't a man of the underground, and yet he was appointed to head the organization. And he does a, a, a tremendous job over the next four years, being an underground leader. He was an outlaw. Okay, so... As soon as he announces his revolt against British rule on February 1st, 1944, just days after taking over the Irgun, he becomes an outlaw. But he doesn't want to live uh, a covert life or an underground life. So he takes on aliases and lives in plain sight. His most famous alias was Rabbi Yisrael Sasover, and he lived in Tel Aviv, and he went to shul and gave shiurim, and he had a beard, and his son, Benny Begin, member of Knesset, um, was shocked. Benny Begin was born in 1943. In 1948, when he was five years old, he was shocked to find out that his father was Menachem Begin, the terrorist. <laughs> he thought his father was Yisrael Sasover. Okay. Um, all right, so... So that's a very good question. That's a very good question for the uh, the post-1948 period. And it applies to all the underground leaders in the post-48 period. But between 44 and 48, if you're a member of the Irgun or Lehi, or you're a high-ranking figure, you don't have another job. The, the organization has funds and pays its operatives. Okay. Um, after 48, these guys have to figure out what they're going to do for a living. Some of them go into politics because you earn a Knesset member's salary. Other guys go into private business. Um, but for now, yeah. My first cousin was married and Menachem Begin was his interferer as Sato, right? Oh, yeah? Yes. So then the British Army couldn't find Menachem Begin. Right. But they found my cousin. So he sat at the Black Saturday in the issue. Right, yeah. 
he, he was, was arrested? already there uh-huh. in, in, in Latrun. Uh-huh. He took care of all the people. He gave them soap and toothpaste. Interesting. And We're going to get to Black, Black Sabbath very soon. And then he went to Eritrea. Uh-huh. <coughs> Eritrea. Eritrea. Uh-huh. My first cousin. What was his name? His name is Joshua Silver. Silver. Interesting. What, did he, what about his wife? Okay, so he, he was with his wife the whole time. As opposed to Yitzhak Shamir, who was not with his wife for two years, uh, because he went to Africa, they got married in 1939. They were separate. They were separated from 40 to 42 when he was in jail and when he was uh, on his way to Eretz Israel. But once he got to Eretz Israel, they were back together. Okay. Now, yeah. Uh-huh. You saw the apartments, yeah. Yeah. yeah, his whole life he lived a modest life. Even when he was prime minister, he lived a modest life. Okay, so the beginning of the revolt is February of 44. Acts of violence against the British mandate. Not with the intention of killing people, but people got killed, but rather doing damage to uh, installations and infrastructure of the mandate. The turning point, which will lead to a series of events that explain uh, the eventual Br- British departure from Palestine... The most important turning point is the assassination of Lord Moyne on November 6, 1944. So the Lehi ordered the assassination of the resident minister of the British government in the Middle East, the highest-ranking British official in all of the Middle East in Cairo. He, Lord Moyne was no innocent man, by the way, from a Jewish point of view. He had said horribly nasty comments about uh, the victims of the Shoah and had absolutely no machmonos uh, at all for Am Yisrael, despite <coughs> the trouble under the Nazis and the situation in Eretz Yisrael. And so he was, he was assassinated. The Lehi members who, who pulled the trigger were themselves executed because the getaway didn't work out as well as it had pl- been planned. Now, the assassination of Lord Moyne, although not carried out by the Irgun and having nothing to do with Menachem Begin, led to the saison, or the, the season, the hunting season, in which the Haganah, under the auspices of Ben-Gurion and the Jewish Agency, were complicit in finding, rounding up, and handing over to the British many members of the Irgun and Lehi. Primarily the Irgun, less so the Lehi. So Begin's organization suffered for the Aveira of the other team. And the question is, does he fight back? Does Menachem Begin, as the leader of an underground organization, on the run from their fellow, uh, their fellow nationals, their co-religionists, their co-Zionists, does he say to defend yourself and fight back against Jewish agency or Haganah officials? He says, no, no civil war. If you get arrested, you get arrested. But you don't, you don't, you don't shoot at another Jew. So his admirers will say that this is one of several instances throughout his career when he could have precipitated a civil war, but refused to do so, and was always against Jew fighting Jew. That's what the admirers will say. Okay, so the answer is that the, the Yishuv, the official representatives of the Yishuv, were under tremendous pressure from the British and from public opinion to do something against the radicals after the assassination of a major political figure. Uh, and to be seen as not doing so would make the Haganah, would lump them in the same category as the radicals. And Ben-Gurion's approach and that of, of the political department of the Jewish agency was we have to be seen as several steps, step, several moral levels above the, uh, the barbarians of the Irgun and Lehi. Okay, so the Cezanne 
uh, last from November of 44 through about March of 45. Then it comes to an end. What else ends in the spring and summer of 45? The war, which changes everything. The attitude of the, of the radical organizations, and especially as typified by the statements of Menachem Begin, was that the British can't be trusted. And that the British promises of the Balfour Declaration and the early stages of the mandate for the establishment of a Jewish national home, those were all lies. Well, maybe they were somewhat sincere back in the teens and 20s, but they no longer were sincere. And the theory held by the mainstream Zionists that the reason why the white paper was passed, was promulgated, and the reason why the, the mandate authorities turned against the Yishuv and favored the Arabs was just because during the war they couldn't afford to offend the Arabs, to alienate the Arabs and, and the majority population and the oil interests. But that after the war was over, and especially in light of Jewish suffering under the Nazis and the Shoah, that the British would uh, have a, 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 some Rahmanis on the Jews and move back in the direction of the Balfour Declaration and favoring Zionist interests, and, and leading to the eventual establishment of a Jewish state. So the, the mainstream Yishuv and the Weizmann types were holding out hope, whereas the, the Begin types knew that was not going to happen. In the summer of 45, in the early fall of 45, as it became clear that the white paper was not going to be changed, and that the, the attitude of the mandate was still going to be hostile to the Yishuv, and there was going to be no d- movement in the direction of Zionism, even the regular uh, mainstream folks like Ben-Gurion and Weizmann and Sharet and the others, uh, and the leaders of the Haganah, like uh, Galili and Sadeh and the others. So they said, you know what, we have to do something. We have to be part of this revolt. It's not just the, the Urgun and Lechi that's going to revolt against the mandate, we're going to do it too. So from October of 45 through August of 46, there was the URM, or uh, the United uh, Revolutionary Movement. Uh, and it was Haganah, Irgun, and Lachi all working together, but not really working together. There was a high command which would give retroactive authorizations to things that were already done in the name of everybody. But still, each organization <coughs> distrusted each other and operated somewhat independently. Yeah? Okay, the Lechi never had more than a thousand, and, and and by the late forties, when most of their guys were arrested and sent to Eritrea, they only had a few hundred, maybe four or five hundred. Irgun had probably twelve hundred fighters and another five thousand people who were well wishers or who were in on various conspiracies. The Haganah was a, was a pseudo legal organization at times. I mean, at, at times the, the 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 British suppressed it and confiscated their guns. At other times, it was considered uh, just a legitimate defense means of the Yishuv. By 1948, there were 40,000 members of the, of the Haganah, including uh, 6,000 members of the Palmach. By the mid, in the mid-40s, there was probably half that number, maybe 25,000. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean they all had guns. It just means they were part of the defense uh, establishment. Okay. So, the United uh, Revolt doesn't last forever. Its last major operation, before the King David Hotel bombing was the Night of the Bridges, on June 16, 1946, when the ele- 11 of the 13 crossings in and out of British Mandate Palestine to the other countries, to Egypt, to, to, to Jordan, to Syria, Lebanon, were blown up. It was a tremendously successful mission, and it proved that the, uh, the British authorities really don't control the country. But the British were very annoyed, and so they, they cracked down. Two weeks later, June 29, 1946, Operation Agatha, or Black Sabbath, 
2,700 Jews are arrested, including the entire leadership of the Yishuv, except for Ben-Gurion, who was out of the country. And except for Begin, who was not found. Okay. This was a tremendous turning point, because everyone realized that, that, that this game is up. The British are not, in our, are not in favor of us. We have to do something very rash to get them out of here. So, the United Revolt approves the blowing up of the King David Hotel, including the Haganah. There is evidence that, Mo, that yes, that Moshe Sneh, the commander of the Haganah, approved the order on July 1st, but later rescinded it before the act happened. So it was done by Irgun Lehi with original Haganah support, but later retraction, and then Ben-Gurion would then lambast the, the, you know, the right-wing militants and saying, oh, this is a horrible deed, even though he was in on it from the, from the beginning. Was this rescission... Did it have anything to do with the relationship for ingratiating itself with the British? No, it just was thought to be too dangerous and people, uh, innocent people would die and it would look bad. Okay, so the bombing takes place on July 22, 46, but this, this lecture is about Menachem Begin, not about the revolt. And what was Begin's involvement in the King David Hotel bombing? So for years, he would stand accused of being the arch-terrorist. It's his fault. He ordered it. Well, did he order it? Answer is, in a way, yes, but there were many other people involved. More importantly, he was not a soldier, he was not a fighter. He was not an operations man. He didn't understand explosives. And throughout his career, Begin, forever the great ideologue, would be uh, led blindly in directions that were not very good by men of uh, operations capability with sinister agendas. The two most important of them being Amichai Paglin, who was the one who was responsible for the, the, the King David bombing, and then in 1982, Ariel Sharon. So, Begin's reputation suffers terribly for the uh, machinations of others underneath him who really knew the operations much better than he ever could. Okay. So, after the King David hotel bombing, the revolt really heats up. Was he more of a figurehead? He was not a figurehead. He was a great leader, a leader of men, but one who didn't know the details and didn't care to know the details of most of the actions that were taken. Okay, now, for example, with regard to the King David Hotel, he wanted a half hour or 45 minute warning. Paglin only ended up producing a 22 minute warning or a 17 minute warning. Why? He claimed, oh, the, the phone line wasn't working. No, Paglin was a vicious brute who wanted to see people die. Begin preferred to blow up the building but not have people die. So different people had different uh, desired outcomes. Okay. On, 19, on December 29, 1946, there was... Moshe Sneh was initially involved in... Moshe Sneh, yes. Yes. He then left, he became leader of the Communist Party. He became leader of MAPAM. Yeah. No, no, then he was in the Communist Party. He was the head of the Communist Party. He left MAPAM too. What, to join Maki, yeah. yeah. What, why was King David such a target? It was the it was the head of the military uh, uh, headquarters, and, uh, military headquarters in the south wing of the hotel. The the north wing of the hotel was still a hotel, but the the the, the one whole side of it was offices of the high commissioner, offices of the uh, the, com- the the military commanders, and the archives. All the evidence that they had against the underground was located in that building and had been taken from them under ap- on, in the night of the Black Sabbath. Okay. Do you remember Exodus? Yeah. Between the love scenes and the strategic scenes <laughs> right. and everything happened there. And, and right, on the, on, the, on the deck of the, of the King David Hotel. So... The night of December 29th, 
1946 was the night of the beatings. The night of the beatings was simply this. Flogging is a, you know, makas, corporal punishment. It's in the Gemara, it's in the Torah. The British used it against the, the, the members of the underground when they caught them. So what did the underground do? They flogged the British. And after that, there were no more floggings in Eretz Israel. So the, the admirers of Menachem Begin will say that here he took a, a, you know, a very rough method, a very harsh method of corporal punishment, but it worked. Yeah. They stopped doing it to us. Okay. But the people involved in the floggings got caught. Um, Dresner, Al-Kahi, and Kashani. And they were sentenced to death, together with Dov Gruner. On April 1647, they were executed. So things are not looking good. Members of the Yagun are being killed, executed by the British. Something's got to be done. So the Acre prison break, which again in the movie Exodus, which is fairly accurately depicted, by the way, in the movie, on May 4th, 47, a significant number of Arab prisoners break out, but also members of Yagun Lehi. Some of them die in the firefight that happens in the aftermath of the breakout because they run into soldiers who are swimming at the beach. So the problem, of course, is that the guys who are involved in the breakout get caught and they're going to be executed. So the Irgun kidnaps two British sergeants and threatens, if you kill our boys, we're going to kill the sergeants. This led to a tremendous problem for uh, the Yishuv and for British Jewry in England. Because the news was being, you know, widely reported in England, and eventually the decision is to execute the Irgun prisoners, and then the Irgun decides, and Begin agonized over this for, uh, you know, he was up all night thinking, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? Do I kill these guys or not? They killed them. Uh, the, two, the two British sergeants, Clifford Martin and Mervyn Pace, were executed, and then their bodies were hung in a eucalyptus tree, a eucalyptus tree in the, uh, the fields outside of, uh, of Netanya and booby-trapped. And there's a famous photo of the bodies hanging in the, uh, in the grove uh, before, when, they were, when, when they were found. So British Jewry suffered terribly as a result of this. There were riots and a pogrom in London, and uh, a few people were, were badly injured and, and, and synagogues were torched. Because, you know, British people uh, reasonably argued that the Jews are killing our boys. The sad part of the whole thing is that Clifford Martin was halachically Jewish. Uh, it was found out later his mother was Jewish from an Egyptian Jewish family and his father was a British Gentile. So these were innocent guys who had no particular malice against the Yishuv, but they were the ones that were caught and they were killed. All right. Let's now jump ahead. You can't talk about the whole life of Menachem Begin in one hour, but let's, let's see what happens next. 1948. Begin wants to be involved in the establishment of the Jewish state. He's very much against partition. He wants Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, which would happen in 1967. But the Haganah and the mainstream leadership are going to declare the state and be the government and be the army. What is the place of the Irgun and the underground once the state is established? I mean, what, what normally happens to underground movements after a state is established? They're out of work. Okay. Or they become part of the, uh, the leadership. Or they, or they become the leadership. But that wasn't going to happen in this case, at least not yet, not for another 30 years. So the Irgun is involved in the War of Independence on three fronts. Some successful, others not. The successful one was in April of 48, 
when the Irgun conquers Jaffa. Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv Jaffa is, is now one large city, but back then Tel Aviv was the Jewish city, Jaffa was basically an Arab city, or something of a mixed city. And uh, Jaffa was supposed to go to the Arab state in the partition plan, but as was the policy of the Yishuv, they were going to conquer as much territory as they could to have a contiguous state. Jaffa had to be captured. The Yugun did it, almost without much of a fight. Also April of 48, there is a struggle to open the corridor to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is cut off from the coast, and there are 100,000 Jews desperately starving for food, thirsting for water, Okay, and they need to have uh, supplies brought in, but the road is blocked. Arab villages all along the Jerusalem corridor. What do you do? You have to attack. So the battle for Latrun would be a little bit later during the war after, after independence was declared with Ariel Sharon. And it didn't go very well. They lost. And Latrun became the no-man's land next to the West Bank. But the Battle of Der Yassin was a Lechi Yirgun operation and was regarded in, in hindsight as a, as a horrible massacre with 250 people killed, including women and children. So the, is that the Arab point of view? So, the, so the, the, here's the story. The Arab point of view is, of course, to inflate the numbers of the dead and to say that there was, there, was, there was a Zionist massacre with mutilation and rape and all sorts of horrible atrocities. The more charitable assessment, with the one put forth by the Irgun itself, is that only 100 people were killed and it was during legitimate military uh, uh, activities. It was a firefight. Yes, there was, this, there was the use of grenades in, in, into houses, but it was necessary because there was sniper fire, and they warned the civilians to leave, and they gave a corridor for the civilians to leave. There are radically different ways of looking at what actually happened. We'll never know for sure. We weren't there. But the bigger picture is, what is the end result? What can we take from the Battle of Deryasin long term? So the detractors of Begin will say that his boys committed an atrocity and gave Zionism a shame ra, a bad name, from which it would hardly recover. And, and to give the impression that the Jews are just as vicious as the Arabs, and so we lose the moral high ground. The admirers of Begin would argue that, put that aside for the moment, the bottom line is, the Jerusalem Carter was opened up, and the Arabs of the section of Eretz, of Eretz Yisrael, which was designated for the Jewish state, fled in considerable numbers because they thought the Jews could be just as vicious as them and they wanted to spare their lives and that the creation of the state of Israel with a Jewish majority, demographic majority was owed to the fact that the Arabs all picked up and left and they might not have done so if not for a moment of brutality on the part of the Jews it's hard to argue against that, uh, that logic it may be distasteful and unpleasant to think about but it, it's very much true okay so, the last area of Irgun involvement was in Jerusalem. They lost the old city. They tried their best, but it, they couldn't hold out. And some of their fighters were taken captive into Jordan and released at the end of the war as, in a POW exchange. Okay, the most important event in the war, though, was the Altalena episode. What is the Altalena? So, again, not all things involving the Irgun were, Be- were Begin's doing, even though, in hindsight, he gets credit or, or lack of credit or uh, the demerit for all these activities. The Atalena was really the doing of Peter Bergson. And the VAD, the, the uh, Committee for a Free Palestine in Europe and America, it was the diaspora Irgun that was itching to get into the fight. They didn't want to be left out. So they bought a ship in France, named it the Atalena, which was the pen name of Jabotinsky, filled it up with uh, illegal Jewish uh, immigrants, and arms, 4,000 rounds of ammunition, 
various uh, hundreds of, of guns, and we're going to sail it to Eretz Yisrael. The Haganah knew about this ship. They knew about it all along. They were not uh, caught uh, blind, you know, uh, uh, by surprise at the coast. That's not what happened. But Begin wasn't necessarily in favor of this ship. It was the diaspora Etzel that, that did it. Of course, but it's coming. So he's going to have to join the party. The boat goes to Kfar Vitkin. And, and they're going to start uh, disembarking. They get the passengers off the boat, get the munitions off the boat. The Haganah comes on the scene. Actually, it's not the Haganah anymore. It's the, it's the IDF, because it's after June 1st, 48. It now becomes the IDF. And they say, the, the government of Israel says you have to hand over the weapons. Right now. You have 10 minutes to hand over the weapons. So, what do they do? Begin doesn't want to hand over the weapons. There's negotiations. The deal is, 80% of the weapons go to the IDF. 20% of the weapons go to the Irgun in Jerusalem. The story is this. Ben-Gurion, as the Prime Minister of the Provisional Government of the State of Israel, after May 14th, does not want to allow for um, private armies. There only is one state and one army. So there can't be an Irgun and there can't be a Lechi anymore. But that's in the State of Israel. Jerusalem is not in the State of Israel. Jerusalem is its own entity, because in the partition plan it was a corpus separatum. It was not part of the Jewish state. So they could allow. So Ben Gurion was willing to concede the possibility of, the, of an independent lech, uh, in, lechi and in Jerusalem for at least the inter, uh, intermediate term. But Be- but Begin didn't trust that the weapons would actually go where they were supposed to go. Begin also wanted separate units within the IDF of former Irgun fighters. To that, Ben Gurion said, "Absolutely not. No way. They're going to blend into the, to the, the other units, and that's it." And Ben Gurion was consistent about this, by the way. It wasn't just the right wing that he abolished. He abolished the Palmach too. Why? Because the Palmach was too far to the left. They were Mapam. They were too close to, you know, to the Kamis. He wanted only one IDF and that's it, without partisan interests. Of course, it was a partisan interest. Mapai, his party. Um, so what happens? The boat moves again. It goes to Tel Aviv. Begin is now on the boat. And the question is, who fired the first shot? Unclear. It's unclear. But at some point... Ben-Gurion orders the boat be sunk. And a cannon fires onto the boat and hits the boat. It eventually is disabled and has to be sunk out to sea. Years later, in the debate over the Altalena, Ben-Gurion, uh, uh, Begin attacked Ben-Gurion, saying, you fired on a fellow Jew, and I ordered my, my boys not to fight back. And people died. You shot at a fellow Jew, and I refused. Again, the idea, Begin doesn't want, doesn't want to have civil war, whereas Ben-Gurion was, was, was the brutal one. So Ben-Gurion said about that cannon, he said, that was a holy cannon. And if they ever rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, they should put the cannon next to the Mizbeach. It would be a good place for it. Why was, ben- why was Ben-Gurion so adamant? That there has to be sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty, over the country without independent military factions. The other factor was, there was a ceasefire in place. A UN-imposed ceasefire from June 11th to July 8th. And this was now July t- uh, June 20th. And if, if, uh, if one side in the war was seen as improving its military advantage by taking weapons, they were in violation of the ceasefire. So, in, the, in, in uh, the writing of the history of the war, some people will say that uh, Begin, uh, uh, Ben-Gurion was against the Altalena because he didn't want to violate the ceasefire. Rubbish. He wanted to destroy the Irgun. And he, and he would have killed Begin if he could. Okay. So, the war is over. Or the war is not over, but 
our discussion of the war is over. What happens next? Begin has another 45 years of life after this, and we have 15 minutes to discuss it. Three is a minute. So, in 1949, there were elections. He establishes the Cherut Party, the the Freedom Party. It's the Irgun in political form. There was a revisionist party in Israel known as Tsohar. Tsunima Revisionistim. He swallowed them whole. What happened was, the Tsohar of Israel, the adult, the grown-up supporters of old Jabotinsky Zionism, were passé by this point. And the Beitar boys from the diaspora who came in the 1940s and fought in the underground, they now had all the strength. So the right wing was under Begin's control with Beitar slash Etzel now in Cherut. That was, the, that, that was the, uh, the name that he gave them. They earned 14 seats, third largest party in the, in the Knesset. That's not very impressive. And Ben-Gurion had a policy. Big governments, led by Mapai, but no communists and no revisionists. So Begin is in, in, in the opposition. What do you do in the opposition? Nothing. The state is run by the Mapai party. It's not much of a democracy. It's a totalitarian under Ben-Gurion. Well, Begin becomes a great parliamentarian. Israel develops its parliamentary uh, system in the late 40s, 1950s, 1960s, pre-Six-Day War era. And this is all brand new. Because until that point, yes, there were Zionist congresses with elections, but they weren't governing anything. Okay, and the Yishuv, the Jewish agency, was not really an elected body. I mean, there was. It was an elected council. But it was more uh, authoritarian than we'd like to believe. So developing parliamentary democracy was important to Begin, since that's all he could do. He couldn't determine official government policy. <laughs> and he was a great uh, uh, orator, a great propagandist. But he needs a cause. His cause is Eretz Yisrael. But wait a second. Only part of Eretz Yisrael is in the state of Israel. How are you going to get the rest of it? Go to war? Is anyone advocating war? Who wants war? The answer is some people did. The real crazy right-wingers, the Brita Biryonim, some of the, the holdovers of Lehi, they did want to go to war to, uh, to rescind the armistice agreements with Jordan and conquer the West Bank in the, in the early 50s. But that's Mamish Meshuga. Even Cherut didn't say that. So he needs another, another issue. And the issue he would find in 1952 was reparations from Germany. Wiedergutmachen. What does that mean? Wiedergutmachen. To make good again. The chutzpah, he said, to call it Wiedergutmachen. That they killed my father and my mother and, and we're going to say that a few dollars, a few million dollars makes it good again. So he led what was a riot in the streets of Jerusalem right outside the Knesset building, which was the, Jew, the old Jewish agency building at that time. And they broke the windows of the building and there were tear gas, everything. Crazy. It could have been a civil war. But, as per, per Begin's usual style, he doesn't encourage violence. At the last second, you know, whatever the decision is, the decision is. We might be against it, and then in the end, the, uh, the, the reparations agreement was signed and Israel got the money. But, uh, so he learned to live with it. But he made a name for himself and attracted more attention beyond the revisionist camp among the Holocaust survivors and those who were emotionally very Jewish and diaspora-oriented. So how could he take reparations money? 
for survivors that not want the reparations? So it wasn't for individual survivors, it was for the state. So those who had suffered personally were more likely to oppose taking the money as blood money. Whereas those who were sabras and it was like a foreign thing to them, the Shoah, they didn't care, they just wanted the cash. Okay. And the Mercedes cars, yeah. Okay. Now, the other important thing that, that Begin does during his years in, in the opposition um, is to develop a rival party to the Labour Party. Mapai, Mifleget Eretz Israel, the party of, of Ben Gurion, had dominated the Yishuv since 1933 and would continue to do so until 1977. It would have an occasional breakaway, like the Rafi party in the 60s. It would have splinter groups that would join and then leave, like Achtud HaAvodah, which was more to the left. It had an odd relationship with Mapam, which was really far to the left. Okay, but what's the, the, the other option if you're not a socialist? So if you're not a socialist, you could be a revisionist. What if you're not a revisionist? What if you're just a general Zionist? General Zionism, what does that mean? It means you're a Zionist, but you, but you don't believe in militant Zionism of the right, and you're not economically in favor of uh, collectivism. You just are a regular plain old Jew who lives in Israel and loves Zionism. General Zionism. It was the party of Herzl, the party of Weizmann, and then the party of complete no-names after 1948, who won between 15 and 20 seats in the Knesset each time, but were not getting anywhere. They're the center. And they were economically liberal in the 19th century meaning of the word liberalism, meaning laissez-faire capitalism. Basically the Tel Aviv merchant class. But Begin is smart. He realizes if he wants to ever be a serious rival party to make a two-party system, he needs the revisionists and the centrists to join forces with him at the top. So in 1951, whereas the general Zionists had 20 seats, Begin's Chayrut had 8. In 1955, Cheirut had 15 and the general Zionists had 13. In 59, Cheirut had 17 the general Zionists were down to 8 because they had internal divisions. In 1961, Cheirut had 17 and the Liberal Party had 17. But in 1965, Gachaus formed. Gush Cheirut Liberalim. The, the union of, of Cheirut, the, the revisionists, and the liberals. How many seats did they get? 26. Is 26 enough to compete for the government with Mapai and Labor? Absolutely not. But you're getting there. You're getting closer and closer every time. 1969, Gacha has 29 seats. 1973, a whole new ballgame. The Likud is established. But before we can discuss that, what happens in the Six-Day War? Menachem Begin is in the political wilderness for 19 years, until 1967. And then on June 1st, he joins the government. Why? Because Levi Eshkol was seen as weak. Levi Eshkol was no Ben-Gurion, at least not in the eyes of the public. He was the defense minister and the prime minister, as per the tradition that the prime minister was also the defense minister, but yet no one trusted him. He had a bad radio uh, address that really scared the hell out of the whole country. And so the pressure was on to make Moshe Dayan the defense minister, and eventually he would accept. But also to expand the cabinet and expand the government to have a wall-to-wall Jewish coalition, which meant even Menachem Begin's Cherut. So Menachem Begin became minister without portfolio. What does a minister without portfolio do? Nothing. 
Nothing. Make trouble. I mean, why do you give someone the, the job of minister without portfolio? Because you need them in terms of the electoral uh, uh, politics of the, of the matter, the, having the, the requisite number of seats in the government, but you want to give this guy no power whatsoever. So he was minister without portfolio. But still, for a guy who was a wanted man by the British and uh, a, a, a complete non-entity politically for 19 years, that's a big step up. Okay, you get yourself a secretary in a car, and, uh, and you get you to call yourself Tsar. Okay, for three years he was a minister in the government, of first of Eshkol and then Golda Meir. He leaves in 1970 because of the Rogers Plan. The Rogers Plan, put forth by William Rogers, the most irrelevant Secretary of State in American history, um, was uh, basically not good for Israel. It was giving away the territories without getting peace in return, and. The fact that the mayor administration even contemplated it was offensive to, to Begin, and he walked away. His job in the government for three years, as he saw it, was to preserve Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, Greater Israel. That was his job. It was his, it was his uh, lifelong goal to see Jewish sovereignty over all of Western Eretz Yisrael. And now that the Jewish state controlled all of Western Eretz Yisrael, even if it didn't assert sovereignty or annex the West Bank, still he wanted to make sure that control was retained. And so, he walks away in 1970, back to the loyal opposition. Just uh, one minute about his relationship with Ben-Gurion, from 48 and onward. Ben-Gurion hated Begin. Begin respected Ben-Gurion, even though there was this adversarial relationship. Uh, Famously, Ben-Gurion never referred to Begin by name. How did he refer to him? As the member of Knesset who sits next to Doctor, who sits next to member of Knesset, Doctor Bader, because Yochanan Bader sat next to Begin, so he was referred to as the guy who sits next to Bader. He never referred to him by name. Chutzpah, not nice. But in 1967, listen to this one. Begin actually said to Shimon Peres, he whispered in his ear, "Is the old man still available to take over if we need him?" Now Ben Gurion was 81 years old at that time and had been out had been ousted from the Mapai in 1963. And his rival was Begin. And yet Begin says, we need him. You know, is, he, is he ready to take over? It didn't happen, but the fact that he even said it. He was living in stable care. He was still a member of the Knesset, though. People think that Ben-Gurion disappeared and went to the, to the Negev. He was still a member of Knesset until 1970. And, now that we get to the formation of the Likud, Ben-Gurion's party joined the Likud. Did you ever hear that? You never heard of such a thing, right? It sounds crazy. But that's exactly what happened. Ben-Gurion was Mapai. In 63, they kicked him out. He formed Rafi, Rishimat Pole Yisrael, with Shimon Peres and Moshe Dayan. Why? Over the Lavon affair, which we could take five hours discussing the Lavon affair. Okay, one of the worst episodes in Israeli history. But having established a new party, it only lasted one cycle, because they, they, they felt folded back into the Israel Labor Party in 1968. Ben-Gurion was very annoyed about that. So he, he became an independent member of the Knesset, and then in '69 he formed La'am, which was the national list, um, the state list, the Rishima Mamachtit, actually was called. Uh, and it won only one, a couple of seats, and he retired in 1970. That, that organization, that state list, together with the independent uh, centrists, joined the Likud in 1970, joined Gachal in 1973 to form the Likud. Who established the Likud? Was it Menachem Begin? He was the head of the party. But did he establish the party? No. Ever the schemer, Ariel Sharon established the Likud party. Why? He wanted to get to the top. 
he was a man of craven ambition, naked ambition. Uh, you see, I don't like him, especially Zichron Olav Racha. He zigzagged politically from being a, a leftist upon leaving the army in '69 to for, to joining the liberal wing of Gachal in '73 to establishing the Likud, to walking away from the Likud, to being the, the defense advisor of Yitzhak Rabin in the labor government in 74, to resigning from that to form a peace party at Shlom Sion in 77, to f- joining the Shlom Sion party with Likud a, a few months later, to eventually becoming defense minister and a, and a, and a settlement hawk. He did whatever was good for him. That, that was his way. Uh, the only thing um, consistent about his politics was their expediency. It's a good way of putting it. So, in any event... In 1973, Begin is getting closer and closer to the top. He wins 39 seats for the Likud. They don't win the election. Labor still has 51, but it's getting darn close. And then the, the, uh, the Agronaut Commission decides that the government was uh, horribly responsible and failed, and the military failed in the Yom Kippur War. And so Golda is gone. Rabin is in. Rabin has his bank account problems in 1977 and has to withdraw. Shimon Peres is the candidate. And in 1977, the Mapach, the revolution. It all gets to overturned. Likud finally wins. 43 seats for Likud, 32 for Labor. How does this happen? How does Menachem Begin, the terrorist, become Prime Minister of Israel? The answer is, he did a few smart things. Number one, he galvanized the support of the Sephardim. Okay. The, the, that was a, a key factor. Another factor was, over the many years of his, not, of his eight, eight terms, eight Knesset terms in the opposition, he successfully aligned all of the non-socialist parties, and also non-religious parties, in one group. So the many, many parties that used to exist no longer. It's now all Likud. There's Likud, there's Labor, and there's Religious and Arab. But basically there's nothing else. I mean, there was Dash, which was the Democratic Movement for Change, which is a one-term party, which had a lot of important people, but it was <laughs> like a lot of the third-way uh, third parties, they're a flash in the pan. They last one cycle and they're gone. Okay. Other factor was, he had a good campaign. Uh, unlike Donald Trump, who makes a buffoon out of himself sometimes and costs himself votes, all right? He's his own worst enemy. Begin wasn't his own worst enemy. Why? He had a heart attack. And people felt sorry for him, and he was off the campaign trail for two months. So who ran the campaign? Azer Weitzman. Azer Weitzman was a savvy, younger fellow, former head of the Air Force, okay, and with a good last name, and used media and television, something Begin didn't really know how to do. And so all these factors worked together to produce a victory. Okay. Now having won, what does he do next? Like in the movie The Candidate, you know, with Robert Redford, what do we do now? He finally won. What do we do now? So the answer is twofold. He needs, he needs peace and he needs settlements. Are the two mutually exclusive? No. No, because it depends upon who the peace is with. Settlements come at the expense of the Palestinians, but peace is with Egypt. So he wanted those two things. Now, the settlement angle would be taken care of by Sharon, his minister of agriculture, who was basically just minister of the settlements. That was his one, he couldn't care less about agriculture within the green line. He just wanted settlements, settlements, settlements. And peace with Egypt, well, that means Sadat coming to Jerusalem, and you know the story, Camp David Accords. But how do you achieve that? So, Begin, not a military man, was very smart. He had a lot of generals in his cabinet. He invited Moshe Dayan to be the... uh, foreign minister, which was very odd, because Dayan was a stalwart of the Labour Party. 
I mean, yes, in America, we do have occasions where a Democrat president will have a Republican in the cabinet, or vice versa, like uh, Gates was uh, from, the, from the wrong party. Okay, but Dayan agreed with Begin on many issues, including on the issue of settlements. Not on annexation, but on settlements. And they were basically eye-to-eye on the matter of giving up the Sinai. Also in the cabinet was Weizmann as a defense minister, at least temporarily, before he was ousted. And then Yigal Yadin would also join the cabinet. So there were many, many heavyweights of the, of the IDF in his government. Successful at producing peace with Egypt. It gets Anwar Sadat killed. But is peace with Egypt enough to win another election in 81? Maybe yes, maybe no. The economy is not doing well. In general, Israel wasn't doing well in 1981, um, despite the peace with Egypt. So it was very close. What do you do to win? So his detractors would say, what did he do? He bombed the nuclear reactor in Iraq to win the election. That it was a political move, not a necessary security move, not for the sake of preventing another holocaust, as he would say, that the, the, the Iraqis are like the Nazis, Saddam Hussein is the next Hitler. That was Begin's rhetoric. So if you're an admirer of his, you believe it wholeheartedly. If you think he's a, a demagogue or a terrorist or a bad guy, you'll say he did it to win, a, win an election. And he, and he won by one vote. 48 Likud, 47 Labor. Okay. He's riding high. He's a two-term prime minister now. But Ariel Sharon ruins it for him by taking the, the, people, the country into Lebanon. Why did, why, in, in Al-Regal Achat, not the whole history of the Lebanon war, but the, the history of the war as relates to Menachem Begin, why did this happen? Why did, why did he enter the country into a, a losing proposition? The answer is that Begin was always hostile to the PLO and to, Pal- to the notion of, of, of Palestinian rights. He was fine with so-called autonomy for the Arabs of the West Bank so long as the West Bank remained under Israeli rule, which is itself mutually exclusive, you could argue. But in any event... He was looking to attack the PLO. He was looking to attack the PLO for whatever, searching for a pretext. What was the pretext? The, the near assassination of Shlomo Argov, the ambassador in London, who was then lived for the next 20 years as a paraplegic in a, in a hospital in Tel Aviv. Um, so, June 6th, invade. The deal was the 40 kilometers north of the border to get the Galilee out of rocket fire of the PLO. That's what Sharon promised. That's what Begin told the general public. Within three days of invading Lebanon, the 40-kilometer border was totally erased, and they were going for Beirut. Much to the chagrin of the Americans, much to the chagrin of Shimon Peres and the opposition in Israel, and eventually much to the chagrin of the soldiers in the IDF who were fighting and dying. Okay? But Begin didn't have the koyach to, to overrule Sharon. Sharon, like Amichai Paglin in the King David Hotel episode, was the operations man, and kept Begin in the dark. Begin really didn't know much of what was going on. He only visited Lebanon one time to the Beaufort after they conquered it. There's a famous picture of him walking with a cane on top of the Beaufort Castle. And he asked one of the generals, knew did the boys still use machine guns? Like he had no clue what the, the kind of weaponry that was involved. Nothing. Okay. Now, all this comes to an end with Sabrin Shatila on September 14th through 16th of 82 and the massacre of a lot, a lot of people by the phalangists in the refugee camp. This is classic Begin. What does Begin say? Goyim kill Goyim, and they blame the Jews. Classic Beganism. Goyim kill Goyim, and they blame the Jews. So, why would he say such a thing? Because, in fact, that's what happened. The Falange killed the Palestinian uh, Arabs, mostly Muslim, uh, and they blamed the Jews. But, 
Even most Israelis didn't buy that line of reasoning anymore. It was morally offensive to many, many Israelis. In the largest demonstration in the history of the state, 400,000 people got together to protest it. Um, the big sign was, you know, we have to live, but do others have to die? So that really hurt him. The Kahan Commission, after the war, established that Sharon had personal indirect responsibility, and Begin did not, but the government collectively had responsibility. And he was basically forced to fire Sharon. Sharon refused to resign, he fired him. Not an easy decision to make, but Begin did it. For all of 1983, he was prime minister, but he was a shell of himself. There were always rumors that he was going to resign because he looked gaunt and frail. He was mentally not well either. He was in a state of depression. Um, and in September, he announces his resignation. And Yitzhak Shamir takes over. For the next nine years, he lives a quiet life, basically as the Asirei Tzion, the, the, the captive of Zion. He lives in his, in his apartment a few blocks away from the prime minister's residence and never leaves and only has occasional visitors. And didn't do interviews and just stayed out of the limelight. Why? The world was too much for him at that point. He had done his fair share, and there was no, not, nothing else he wanted from the world or the world from him. Uh, Aliza's death really, really hit him badly. The Lebanon War hurt him badly, and he never recovered. So, even while he was still alive, the books were being written about him. You know, his uh, political eulogy was being uh, given by those who loved him and those who hated him. And when he died in 1992, it was a massive funeral, state funeral. But he didn't want to be buried with the greats of the Zionist game, the prime ministers and presidents. Who did he want to be buried with? Obviously his wife. But Barazani and Feinstein, who died a suicide death holding a grenade to themselves where they were trying to blow up the whole prison, but the, but the rabbi was there, so they didn't want to kill him, so they, they, they killed themselves before they could be executed. They were the great Irgun uh, Olei HaGadom, those who went up to the gallows. That's what he wanted. He never really, in his own mind, got past the years of the revolt. That was the highlight of his life, 44 to 48. Yes, he became Prime Minister of Israel, but the great years were the underground years. That's who he was, in his heart of hearts. Those who, who revered him felt that he was a great Jew. And he always spoke about being a Jew, more than being an Israeli. He wasn't Israeli, he was a Jew. Some of the Sabras, like Dayan, would refer to him as a ghetto windbag. He, would just, he said a lot, but didn't do anything. And he didn't, he didn't lift a gun, he didn't lift a plow, he wasn't a farmer, he wasn't a soldier, he was a ghetto windbag. He came from, the, from, from the Europe, from Poland, and he knew how to talk a good revisionist game. But that's it. Whereas his, his followers would say that he was one of the heroes of Am Yisrael. And he preserved the Shlemut HaMoledet, the, 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 the totality of the homeland, in addition to other good things that he did on behalf of uh, the Jewish people. His legacy is not a good one outside of Jewish circles. And to be honest, it's not a good one. It's, his, his reputation, his posthumous reputation, is not very good outside of either religious or right-wing Zionist circles. Uh, he never was able to capture the love and affection of anyone else. But among the, that crowd, the he's a gadol. He so uh, so among, among the, the, the Sephardim, who are basically going to fall into one of those two categories, either they're revisionist Zionists or they're religious Jews. Um, they were the downtrodden. They were the downtrodden, and he was their hero. Yep. Uh, and they wouldn't have another hero like that really ever again. Which is why, interestingly from a political point of view, and with this we'll end, the Shas party is established when? 
1984, Begin is now out of politics. That the idea of the Sephardic community voting for an ultra-Orthodox party would have made no sense in the early years of the state and also wouldn't have made sense when one of the major parties was advocating on their behalf. But the Likud eventually moved away from uh, the style of Begin and so the Sephardic voter was attracted to the party of Rabbi Ovadi Yosef. Certainly not the same thing as the uh, mainstream party of the Likud. Okay, with this we'll stop.